Well, turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 19 as we're continuing, of course, our study of the book of Revelation. As I said, we've got to a really special part because in the first, you know, starting in chapter 6 through right up to 19 is the tribulation. And we see the, 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 the you know, all the judgments, the vile judgments, the trumpet judgments, the, uh, just everything going on and, and the fall of the, the city of Babylon and all of that. And now we're getting to what we're getting to really is the end and the eternal aspect. A lot of times people say that what began in Genesis will be completed in the book of Revelation, and we are seeing and have seen the judgment by God on the fallen world system. We've seen and going to see this morning the response in heaven as God judges, and we're going to see the marriage supper, and we'll talk about that, how that fits together. And as we look at this, we keep the focus on Jesus Christ all the way through the whole book. It's really about him and the judgment that is coming to the world, and then Jesus comes as the king. So let me start with this word, a word like uh, anticipation. You know, that's like, well, I can hardly wait for something. We, we sometimes, and the Bible has a word called hope. And the word hope in the Bible means an eager anticipation of the future. Sometimes we use the word hope like, oh, it doesn't rain. And, and we use it that way. But the Bible, when it uses the word hope, it's not like it might not happen. It's always an eager anticipation of the future. I think one of the days that a lot of people look forward to is their wedding day. That's a special day. And do, people do that. Two people, God brings two people together so they can glorify Christ in their lives. But you, we know that our culture doesn't take marriage and weddings very seriously. In fact, I read an article, it's been a couple of years ago, but it was in USA Today, and it was about Las Vegas, about the drive-through wedding chapel there. And what you do is you drive up, you press the buzzer, and, and then you order your wedding. It costs as little as $27. Uh, you can have no ceremony if you don't want one. You just get the license. They hand you back the license, and you can go on your way. There's really no vows or commitment, just a license. Well, when we think about marriage, we know how special marriage is, and this morning... We're going to see a special marriage. It's the Lamb. The Lamb of God brings his bride to the marriage supper. We call this the marriage supper of the Lamb. And guess who the bride is? The bride is us. We're the church, the body of Christ, and we'll see how that ties together as we study. So the Lamb is Jesus Christ. He's the bridegroom, and the bride is the church. And all who have believed in Jesus Christ are going to come together. And there's going to be a special time in the kingdom in which all the Old Testament believers and the tribulation believers and the church and everything all comes together for a special marriage supper of the Lamb. And we'll talk more about that this morning. Let me give you the outline of the passage. Uh, we're going to see the response in heaven. And this is about the judgment of the city of Babylon. And we'll see the multitudes and the elders. And then we're going to see the marriage supper. Now the marriage supper begins after the, the kingdom begins, but he gives us a preview of what it's going to be like. And we see there's joy and the invitation and all those kind of things. We'll see it how it ties together. Let me remind you of where we are, that we do this a lot, just so that make sure that, especially if there's somebody here for the first time, but so you can put the thing together. We realize Jesus came the first time to the earth to die on the cross to pay for sin and rise again, walked on the earth for basically 40 days, sent it back into heaven. Church began. We're in the church. We're the church age now. Jew and Gentile together in one body, believing in Jesus Christ. The church was a mystery in the Old Testament, but here we are. The next event is the rapture. Jesus Christ will come in the clouds. The dead in Christ will rise first. We who are alive and remain will be caught up together with him. That's called the rapture. Following the rapture, and we don't know how long a time there'll be, but there'll be a time period in which... Uh, 
there'll be a, probably a ten king federation, but somewhere out of there, this man we call the Antichrist, the book of Revelation calls him the beast, he makes a peace pact with Israel. So I want to remind you of something. The rapture does not begin the tribulation. The peace pact with Israel begins the tribulation. It lasts for seven years. That's what we've been seeing in the book of Revelation, starting in chapter 6, going up to chapter 19. Then Jesus comes the second time to the earth. That's his first coming to the earth. This is the second coming to the earth. This is coming in the clouds. He comes as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. After he comes, there is the marriage supper of the Lamb, which is at the beginning, and then there's the thousand-year reign, and then on into eternity and all kinds of things like that. We'll get to that. In fact, we're going to see it in the next uh, 19, 20, 21, and 22. We're going to see all of those things. Now, let me remind you of the, the, 70, the seven uh, years of the tribulation. It's divided into two parts. The first three and a half years is called the tribulation. The last three and a half years is called the great tribulation. There's a peace pact made at the very beginning. Uh, the nation of Israel makes a peace pact with the Antichrist. It starts off with peace, goes to war, goes to famine, and goes to death. 144,000 Jewish men, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes, are raised up who believe in Jesus Christ, and they begin to proclaim to the Jewish people about Jesus Christ and Messiah, and many of the Jewish people, in fact, most of the Jewish people will believe in Jesus Christ. Antichrist, halfway through, goes into the temple in Jerusalem, claims to be God, puts his idol up called the abomination desolation, claims to be God, makes everybody take the mark of the beast, 666, and the last three and a half years is just judgment. God brings the judgment. He brings the bowl, the, the bowl judgments, the trumpet judgments, all of these things we've been seeing. At the very end, Jesus comes back to set up the kingdom, and that's, that's where we are. So I wanted to remind you, the seal judgments all end. They started back in chapter 6. In one chapter, he gave us the whole overview of the tribulation. At the end of the seven seal judgments, Jesus comes. Then he went the trumpet judgments, and we see that at the end of the trumpet judgments, Jesus comes. Then there are the bowl judgments. At the end of the bowl judgments, Jesus comes. So what we see is they all overlap with each other, and at the end, here comes Jesus as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We will see that next week in Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. We will see how all that fits together. There's some great things there. What we saw last week is the city of Babylon fail. At the time of the tribulation, in, ba in Iraq, there's a city called, there's, there's going to be a city rebuilt called Babylon. It will be the capital of the world. In Jerusalem is the temple rebuilt by the Jewish people, and the Jewish people worship there. Halfway through the tribulation, the Antichrist places his idol in the temple in Jerusalem, claiming to be God. That's the fall of religious Babylon, because everything switches from Babylon to Jerusalem, and the Antichrist claims to be God. Then at the end of the tribulation, we saw it last week, the city of Babylon, the economic city, falls, crumbles. God judges it and destroys it. And that's where we are. We have just seen all of these things. And chapter 19 begins with, after these things. And that's what we're looking at. And so we've seen the fall of the city of Babylon, which is where the Antichrist has his headquarters. The religious part's in Jerusalem, but the headquarters is in Babylon, and God has judged it. John, who wrote the book of John, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and the book of Revelation, has been taken to heaven to see all of this, and he has written it down for us. What's going to happen now? What does he see? Look at chapter 19, look at verse 1. After these things, I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory 
and power belong to our God. So after these things, after the city of Babylon failed, both the city and the systems, everything is falling. God is about to come back. There's about to be the final war. We've talked about it already. Then the kings of the world are coming together in the plain of Jezreel at, at the mountain of Megiddo, Har Megiddo. They say we call it Armageddon. They're all coming together for the final battle to come against Jerusalem and against Jesus Christ. That's what's about to happen. And Jesus is coming. That's Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. Now, what we see there's notice it says, I, John said, after these things, after I saw all that, I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven. I saw like a bunch of people saying something. What were they saying? Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Now, the, we're going to say, who are these people? The best that we can understand is we go back to Revelation chapter 6. John saw, and listen, to think of carefully. John saw a throne in heaven. This is what it looks like. He saw a throne. Sitting on the throne was the Father. But he couldn't actually see the Father. It was sort of like it was something red and something you could see through almost. By the Father was the Lamb. The Lamb is Jesus Christ. Around the throne were 24 elders, which we think represent 12 tribes, uh, the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles. And then there were these four living creatures that had wings and they had different faces and they were around the throne. And then we saw millions of angels. And then we saw all these people. And these people are shouting out, and they're saying, how long, how long? And John says, who are these people? And the angel says, these were people who got killed by the Antichrist in the tribulation. We think that at the fall of Babylon, these people are shouting out, saying, hallelujah. Notice chapter 19 again, verse 1. After these things, I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. So we're going to see four hallelujahs. Here's the first one. Hallelujah means praise the Lord. Now, by the way, I just want you to understand that the Hebrew, this is a Hebrew word. The first part of the Hebrew word is called hallel. It means praise. And then there's the last part, yah, means, or yah, means Lord. This part right here we think is just kind of a connection. So hallel, yah, means praise the Lord. And that's what hallelujah means. So when you see the word hallelujah from now on, think about it. And what does it mean? It means praise the Lord. It means giving praise to God. And so this great multitude said, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. So they begin to shout out and they say these things right here. Salvation, glory, and power belong to God. Well, what do they mean by that? Well, first of all, think about it. Salvation does belong to God. God is the one who saves. Salvation is all of God. Salvation is through Jesus Christ. It is not based on our works. It is not based on our goodness. Jesus Christ came to the earth, died on the cross, paid for sin, rose again, and offers a gift of eternal life. Not works. It's not what we do. It's not being faithful. Faith alone and Christ alone. In fact, we can't save ourselves. There's no possible way. Look at Psalm 49 says, truly no man can ransom another or to give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice. Listen, we can't pay for other people's sins. We can't pay for our own sin. 
Jesus Christ did it all. He is the Savior. So uh, to him is salvation. Then it says glory. It goes all the way back to Revelation 4.11 where they say glory, glory, glory to God. He gets all the glory. The glory comes to God. The glory comes from God. All glory is from him. And then the word power, which means the ability. And that means God has the power to do anything and everything that he chooses to do. Uh, He is all powerful. Nothing can stop him. Job said, can anything stop the hand of God? And the answer no. Think about what happened. God formed us. Sin deformed us. God transforms us. God is all powerful. And so when we see this and we see that salvation and glory and power belong to God, that's what they're saying. They're saying, praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Salvation, glory, power belong to God. And I want you to see something. God has shared his salvation, his glory, and his power with us. How? Well, he said he's, he's shared his salvation because he's given all, he's provided a way that any human being, anywhere, anytime, any place, can believe in him for eternal life, and that's salvation. He shared his glory because the glory that man has as the crown of creation is given by God. When God created everything, the top of the line, the most fi- best thing he created was mankind. And he says, I share my glory with that. And then he shares his power with us. Every one of us in this room have the power of the Holy Spirit indwelling in us, all of us who know Christ, who have believed in him, we have his power. So he has shared his salvation, his glory, and his power. And so we see that. He says, after these things, again, verse 1, I heard something like this loud voice of a great multitude saying, praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. And then he tells us why. Because his judgments are true and righteous. For he has judged the great harlot who is corrupting the earth with her immorality. And he has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. He says, why, why? Why do we give him all the glory? Because he's right. He's true and righteous. He's always right. Everything that he does is right. He has judged the, the harlot. Remember we said that uh, the city Babylon was called a harlot and that it's false worship and false worship in the Bible is considered prostitution or harlotry. And this is what he says. He has judged the harlot because of her corrupting the earth with her immorality, false worship. Most of you remember J. Vernon McGee or some of you have heard of J. Vernon McGee. He was a great Bible teacher. He taught through the Bible radio. He says this, the destruction of Babylon at the end of the tribulation. Then there's the somber the somber gives way to the singing. They're going to begin to praise God because what he has done, how he has judged them. Notice verse 3. A second time they said, what did they say? Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Her smoke rises up forever and ever. The praise is for the judgment on the, on the fallen city of Babylon. Listen, there are people all that are, that are up in heaven during this time that are that are saying to God, judge those wicked people, judge those people who put us to death, judge those people who chased us down and killed us because of our faith in Jesus Christ. And he's saying, I'm judging them, and they're all saying, hallelujah, hallelujah, because their smoke has risen up forever. And notice the next verse. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sits on the throne saying, amen, hallelujah, 
So here they are, the, the 24 elders. You remember I said there was the throne with the Father and then the Son, then the 24 elders around, then the four living creatures. Well, the, the, the 24 elders, we think, represent the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles of the church. And notice it says, and the four living creatures. These four living creatures, if you go back to Revelation 4, you don't have to turn there now, but if you go back there, there's these beings that they've got these wings and they've got these faces and one looked like a man and one looked like a cow and one looked like an eagle and and I mean, they just, they, they, they were going and, and guarding and, and praising God. Notice what they're all saying. Amen. Hallelujah. Listen, amen means truth, and hallelujah, as we said already, means praise. Sometimes people don't understand. that. Some people think amen means the end of the prayer. You know, like you'll say, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. What amen actually means true or truth. And so when you say, in Jesus' name we pray, this is true. This is what you're saying. You've heard in the background, people sometimes, you know, in the older days, somebody would shout out and say, amen, brother. And what they're saying is, it's true. This is true. And so what are they saying? They're saying, it's true. And praise the Lord, because they've judged the wicked city. And then in verse 5, and a voice came from the throne saying, give praise to our God, all ye his bondservants, ye who fear him, you who fear him, the small and the great. And so he comes and he says, give praise to God. Literally, it means keep on praising, keep on giving praise, keep on praising God. There's a voice comes from the throne, and we don't know who it is. It may be another angel, and it says, praise God, keep on praising God, all you his bond servants. Let's stop for a minute and think about a bond servant. We don't think about it that much, but in this time that all this was written, Half the world were slaves. Half the population of the world were slaves. They were called bond servants. What we don't always realize that as a human being, before we believe in Jesus Christ, we're slaves of sin and we're actually slaves of Satan. And then the moment we believe in Jesus Christ for eternal life, we've gone from death to life, from being a part of Satan to being a part of Jesus Christ, and we actually become a bond servant of Jesus Christ. We get to serve him. See, realize either we're serving Satan or we're serving God. And that's why Paul, when he'd write his letters, he would say, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, because he considered his life set apart for God. That's how we should consider ourselves. And look what the verse says. Give praise to our God, all you his bondservants. And then he says, you who fear him, small and great. When people get so confused about the, the fearing the Lord, the, the word for fear there has an idea of awe. And, and, and sometimes people, when they see the word fear the Lord, they think fear the Lord, as he's, he's looking for him to mess up and he's just going to do something bad. No, God loves us beyond what we could imagine. Now, he is all powerful. And the idea of fear comes with the idea of awe and respect for who he is and what he's done. I remember in the book, The Lion, Witch, and the Lord, Lord Robe, when, when Aslan was there, and he's the lion, of course, and somebody's standing there and they say, is he safe? And the answer is, no, he's not safe, but he's good. And let me tell you something. Is God safe? The answer is, no, he's not. He's all-powerful. He's the most powerful being that could ever be in existence. He created all things by speaking. He can do everything. But he is good. And he loves us beyond what we could imagine. So when we say fear the Lord, it's not that we're afraid he's going to go after us. It's the fear of the fact that he is the most powerful being we can even imagine. And so this verse says, a voice came from the throne saying, give praise to our God. And you, his bondservants, you who fear him, the small 
and the great. And so he's saying that, do that. And then look at this. He says, then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude and like the sound of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder saying, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the almighty reigns. That's the four hallelujahs. And this last one is there, there are this great multitude and he heard all this sound and the multitude said, hallelujah, he reigns, he reigns, he reigns. Listen, he's called the Almighty there. Almighty means the most powerful one. So when you think of God and when you think of Jesus Christ, we know that he loves us and he's the good shepherd and he lays down his life for us. But at the same time, he's the most powerful being that could ever exist and we've ever even imagined. And so the first part of this chapter is they're all praising God and saying, hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. Why? Because he has judged the wickedness of the earth. And now we're going to see something special. And now we're going to see the key event, and it is the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he's going to describe this event where Jesus comes to the earth and we come with him and there's going to be a banquet and Old Testament saints are coming to the banquet and tribulation saints are coming to the banquet and the church is coming to the banquet because it's the marriage supper of the Lamb and we are the bride of Christ and we'll see how that ties together. But before we do that, I want to show you something. I want to show you a basic Jewish uh, wedding process, okay? Look at this. This is the review of a Jewish marriage. What would happen is there was a betrothal. And the, the, man, the father of a guy and the father of a girl would have talked. And they said, why did my son marry your daughter? And maybe they already liked each other. Maybe they already saw each other. And so the guy would go to the house of the girl and, and see his, her father. And he would go with money. It was a down payment. And he'd give the money. And she would come into the room. And they would be two glasses of wine. And then he would pick up. And she would pick up, and if they drank it, if she drank it, she's saying, I will marry you. If she walks out of the room, that's a bad thing for the guy, okay? It wasn't good. So, but, but that's the betrothal. And by the way, from the moment that she takes that cup and drinks it, and, go, and they're together, they're married. And they're not come together yet, and if they were not going to get married, there would have to be a divorce. What he does then is he tells her, I'm going back to my father's house, and I'm going to prepare a place for you. Because most men would go back to where he, is, he grew up. He would build on a room to the house that they lived in. And when they got married, he would bring her there. Does it sound familiar that in my father's house there are a lot of rooms? I'm going to go prepare a place for you. And then he would return for her and he could come at any time. Once the room was ready, he could come get her any time he wanted to. And then... Usually there was a seven-day celebration after the marriage part, dancing and food, and then it all ended with a big marriage supper. At the very end, all the guests were invited, or most of the guests were invited. Let's put it that way, and we'll talk more about it in a second. So he goes and get, goes, betroths the girl, gets the place ready, comes and gets her. They have a seven-day feast, and then they have the marriage supper. I want you to think about what Jesus Christ has done for us. First of all, we're betrothed to him. He came down and he died. And what did he say at the Last Supper? Take this juice. This represents my what? My blood. 
They drink it, that we're, we're believing in Jesus Christ for eternal life, and guess what? We're betrothed to him, and it cannot end. He says, I've gone my, in my father's house, there are many rooms, if it wasn't that way, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you, I'll come back and get you. That's what he's doing. Where is Jesus right now? He is at the right hand of the throne of the Father, preparing a place for us. He's going to come and get us anytime he wants to. That means in any second, Jesus Christ will come in the clouds, and we, the bride of Christ, will be what? Taken off the face of the earth to go and meet him in the air. That will be, most likely, not seven days, but seven years, which will be the tribulation time period, which they will be celebrating, will be getting rewarded, and then he returns for the marriage supper, and people are invited. Now, we're going to talk more about it in a little bit, because not everybody is invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. We'll see it more in just a minute, but that's the flow. So just as Jesus, we have believed in Jesus, he's gone to prepare a place for us. He's going to come get us, take us out. It'll be seven years. That's the tribulation time period. And then will be the marriage supper of the Lamb. He's going to describe this for us in verse 7. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. He says, rejoice, it's time. He's going to tell us what the marriage supper of the Lamb is like. He says, the bride has made herself ready. What does that mean? Look at the next verse. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. Now, he's going to describe what the fine linen is. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Now, guess who's coming to dinner? Guess who's coming to the marriage supper of the Lamb? It is the believers who have done righteous acts. Now, let me just say this in a nice way. Not every believer will be invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. It is the faithful believers. It is the one in which God says, well done, good and faithful servant. It is the one found in the book of Hebrews, which are called the metakoi, which means the partners with Christ. There will be believers who are going into the kingdom, but will not be at the marriage supper of the Lamb. They're not faithful. Let's just face it. There are believers who are faithful and believers who are not faithful. The believers who are faithful who have the righteous acts of the saints, they're going to be at the banquet. So what we hope and pray for every one of us in this room who have believed in Christ, that we're going to live righteously and godly, we'll hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant, and we'll be at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now let me just tell you one thing. In the Gospel of Matthew, he uses a term three times in the Gospel of Matthew. It's called outer darkness. Most people think outer darkness means hell or the lake of fire. It does not. Outer darkness is used of the parables in Matthew to show people who are not at the banquet. They are in the outer darkness. They're not at the banquet. So anytime you start, when you study the book of Matthew and you see outer darkness, look at the context of the passage and you'll see it's not talking about lake of fire. It's talking about missing the banquet. Do you remember the parable about the guy who showed up at the banquet and everybody, the banquet's going on and he doesn't have the right clothes on? You know why? He doesn't have the righteous acts of the saints. And they come up to him and said, how did you get in here? He's a believer. He's just not to be at the banquet. So listen, there are going to be a lot of believers who are not going to be at the banquet because there are a lot of believers who have not lived for Jesus Christ and served him. So think about that. Anyway, so he describes here, it's given to her to clothe herself the fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Now, watch. Um, 
rejoice. They're clothed in white linen, the righteous acts of the saints. Here's what John Walford said. He was the president of Dallas Seminary when I was there. He says, this fine linen may be a part of the rewards given at the judgment seat of Christ to those who have served. That's exactly what we think it is. We get rewarded to go into the kingdom. Now watch the next part. And then he said to me, write, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. See, not everybody is invited. And he said to me, these are true words of God. Not everybody is invited. There'll be blessing to those who are invited. Look at this right here. Matthew 8, 11 says, I tell you that when many come from the east and the west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Listen, in the banquet will be Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the Old Testament believers who have been faithful and the New Testament believers who are faithful and the tribulation believers who are faithful. They'll all get to be at the banquet, the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's powerful. F.B. Meyer said the marriage supper is the arrival of the time when the redeemed of every age have anticipated is a long for a day. It's supposed to be patriarchs of the patriarchs, the theme of the songs, the predictions of the, the prophets, and the hope of the church. He says this is the special, special time. Verse 10, what did John do when he heard all this? Then I fell at his feet to worship him. Now, who is he talking to? He's talking to an angel. What does John do? He falls down in front of an angel to worship him, but he said to me, don't do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. He falls down in front of this angel to worship him, and he says, no, don't worship me. Worship God. He alone deserves to be worshiped. He calls himself a fellow servant of yours. You understand that we just finished uh, SBI for the semester. I did a class on angels and demons, and we realized that good angels serve God, and good angels serve mankind. And this angel is telling John, hey, look, don't worship me. I'm a servant. I'm one of the servants. And so he says, don't worship me. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus, the spirit of prophecy. In other words, Jesus gives the truths and the prophecies and the things that he says always come true. So there's praise in heaven over the judgment of Babylon. They say hallelujah four times. He gets all the salvation, the glory, and the power. Then it's time for the marriage supper, and he's bringing together everybody who's, who are believers and the people who, get, who have been faithful, who have the righteous acts of the saints, they get to be at the marriage supper. So let me give you a couple of quick applications as this. Number one, let's just praise and worship our God and Savior. Salvation, glory, and power belong to Him. Salvation, because He's the one that sent Jesus Christ. God, God the Father sent the Son. Jesus died on the cross, paid for sin, rose again, and whoever believes has eternal life. That's salvation. Glory, praise Him for who He is and what He's done. The King of kings, the Lord of lords. He has all power. He's called the Almighty, all-powerful God. And so as we sing, the songs we sang this morning were incredibly great, oh, just amazing. And, and so when we come together on a Sunday morning, we're singing praise and so to, about our God who saved us and who gets all the glory and who's all powerful and all of those things. So that's who he is. The second application is let's look forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb. What we want to hear him say is what? Well done, good and faithful servant. To be there, we have to be clothed in white linen, and the white linen is the righteous acts 
of the saints, of the believers. That means we have to live righteously and godly, serve God, and so when the time comes for the banquet, we'll get invited. We'll have the right clothes. We'll get to go in. That's what I hope and pray for all of us. I hope we hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. Let me just remind you of where this is. We're right at the end of the tribulation. The city has fallen. The marriage supper of the Lamb takes place. We think very early in the thousand-year reign of Christ, Jesus comes back, separates the believers from the unbelievers. Old Testament saints are raised and go. The church comes, and the tribulation saints come. We all come and form the kingdom with Jesus. And let me just tell you something. We're going to see it, but Jesus is going to rule from Jerusalem. And King David is going to rule from Jerusalem. And most likely all the Jewish believers are going to rule from Israel and Jerusalem in that part of the world. And then we who have, have been faithful will have places to rule all over the world for a thousand years. And then guess what? He's going to get rid of this world and make a new heaven and a new earth. That's Revelation chapter 21 and 22. And we'll see that.